Sometime in the 19th century, a song started making the rounds from southern plantations. The song came from enslaved African Americans and had a deeply moving, soulful sound. You know it. You sing it every Lent and Holy Week. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. And oh, how it should. But to answer the question asked by the spiritual, no, I wasn't there. And neither were you. But would I have been there? No, probably not. Why is that? Because I'm a male. No male friends of Jesus were reported to have stayed with him through his crucifixion and death. Except one, John the Apostle. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea was there too. At least we know he was there to claim Jesus' body and to bury him. But apart from one, possibly two, males, no. In general, none of Jesus' male friends were there. And so, no, I probably wouldn't have been there either. So as the song goes, were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when they rolled away the stone? No, I wasn't. And I'm sure I wouldn't have been there if I was there. And I think I can answer that question on behalf of nearly all men through the ages. No, you probably wouldn't have been there either. And oh, how this should cause us to tremble, tremble, tremble. But you ladies, you female friends of Jesus, well, that might be very different. The Gospels tell us that many women followers of Jesus were there. Why is that? Why were many women who were followers of Jesus with him at Calvary, at his death, at his burial, at his tomb on Easter morning? My name is Dave Shanefelt, and I'm glad you are joining us for this lecture number 10, The Women at the Cross, because there is a whole lot of questions I want to ask and to see if we can find answers to them. So why did the women followers of Jesus stay at the cross, but not the men? I don't know, and it's counterintuitive in this respect. A crucifixion scene was an absolutely disgusting scene that no human eye should ever behold. Even the Romans, who knew about it and practiced it, didn't like even talking about it, much less seeing it. 
the screaming, the cursing, full-throttled death yells, men writhing like snakes on a stick, blood, excrement, flies, stench, birds of prey perched on crossbeams trying to pluck out eyes, dogs waiting to lick up blood and take off with a foot or a calf muscle, soldiers smirking, half-drunk, dividing clothes, yelling at people to stand back, repairing tools, cursing with each other about their ridiculously low pay, wondering what's for dinner back at the fortress. More blood, more bowel drippings, and the never-ending screaming, screaming and screaming, until the screaming stopped, and there would be silence. And then people would attend to the carnage in the silence, a brutal execution, a state-imposed justice. It's hard to fathom that human beings could do that kind of thing to each other, but unfortunately, human beings do do that kind of thing to each other. In Jesus' case, you had highly civilized, cultured, religious people not only arranged to have this done to another human being, but these highly civilized, cultured, religious people, the chief priests and leaders, actually came to the site and taunted him seeing, hearing, and smelling all the horror that was going on. It's hard to believe they actually did that, that anyone could do that, no matter how much hatred they had for somebody. It's one thing to wish someone dead. It's another thing to watch and mock and laugh at their excruciating torment and in the sight of family and friends around and women. Everybody knows that men and women perceive pain differently, and science is beginning to confirm that. The female body has a more intense natural response to painful stimuli than does the male body. Women have a greater nerve density. They have hormones that fluctuate more than men do, that elevate pain perceptors, and so forth. And I think it's also fair to say that women tend to be more compassionate than men. They emphasize more with someone who is suffering than men do. And maybe it's because they have that higher sensitivity to pain. I don't know how science can quite measure that, but it makes sense to me. But what I do know is that women were at the crucifixion site and men were not. Well, there were male soldiers there and male religious leaders and their lackeys. And there may have been some gawkers who were male, the kind who go to no-holds-bar cage fighting so they can see blood spurt. But none of Jesus' disciples or male friends were there at all, except as noted. And they weren't there for any reasons due to pain or empathy, but due to cowardice. But the women were there when they had every natural instinct to not be there, to not behold this absolutely horrific, disgusting scene. Why were they there? Well, the one obvious answer is that it was because they loved Jesus. But there's more below the surface than that. On the one hand, if you're highly sensitive to pain and you have a great deal of empathy and compassion, then every fiber in you would repulse you from the scene. You would want to stay away. You would need to stay away. I just can't handle it. And that would be very fair, and no one could ever fault you for feeling this way. 
No one, man or woman, should ever want to behold or have to behold such a scene. It kills part of your soul. You can't unsee it. On the other hand, maybe it was because these women had such a high degree of empathy and compassion that they overcame the natural revulsion that went to the core of their being. Maybe they felt so profoundly bad for Jesus that they were willing to endure all the horror he and others around him were going through. If you think about what love is, that makes sense in some respects, doesn't it? Love involves sacrifice. Sacrifice involves pain. The greater the pain, the greater the sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, what? The greater the love. That stands to reason, doesn't it? So, given the pain these women endured, given the sacrifice these women endured, can't we say then that they loved Jesus to an extraordinary degree? To a degree, dare we say, more than any men would have felt had they been there? Maybe. But what I do know is that the women who stayed with Jesus to his last and mupped up the murder scene afterwards were extraordinary human beings that are worthy of our own love, admiration, interest, attention, study, and reflection. And I want to give that attention to them here. I want to reflect on who they were personally, what we know about them, and what we know they did. And I want to do that with a special insight Pope St. John Paul II gave us in his 1988 encyclical letter, Mulieris Dignitatum, on the dignity of women. It's an extraordinary document, and it's really the first of its kind in the 2,000-year history of the Church. John Paul wanted to reflect on the special dignity and vocation of women as such, and as distinct from men. And he wanted to uncover truths about women that have always been there since the beginning, but haven't had the kind of attention they should have received. He says, and here he's quoting Pope Paul VI in one of his discourses, quote, Within Christianity, more than in any other religion, and since its very beginning, women have had a special dignity of which the New Testament shows us many important aspects. It is evident that women are meant to form part of the living and working structure of Christianity in so prominent a manner that perhaps not all their potentialities have yet been made clear. End quote. What I'd like to do in this talk is highlight and summarize what scholars and historians have had to say about the women at the cross. What they have to say, I think, helps us reflect on that, quote, special dignity of women that the New Testament shows us and lets us see how these women, these particular women, who were with Jesus at his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection, were and became, as John Paul says, quote, part of the living and working structure of Christianity. But maybe not, as he says, quote, in any prominent manner, more rather in a subtle and understated manner that lets us see how these potentialities might be clearer. So why me? Why would I, your average red-blooded male, want to dive deep into this subject of the women at the cross? Easy answer. I just like reflecting on the crucifixion and knowing as much detail as possible about it. It helps me think about it, imagine it better, and I hope it helps you think about it and imagine it better too. So, here we go. 
You've heard me talk about the tiny little details that come to us in sacred scripture that scholars and historians have taken and are still taking time to unpack and explain to us. There's a whole world below the lens of a microscope, and there's a whole world of facts just below some of these words and phrases. And the one thing we can never forget, as much as we parse through the scholarly papers, the debates, the dialectic, the analysis, the logic, the related historical tidbits, and archaeology that perpetuate the papers, the debates, and the dialectic, we just can't forget this one very major point. We are dealing with God's inspired word. God is infinite, and his word is inexhaustible. So, he has given us a handful of words here that allow us to study and reflect on these extraordinary women who were there when they crucified our Lord, and when they nailed him to the cross, and when they pierced him in the side, and when they laid him in the tomb, and when they rolled away the stone. And what scholars and historians and church fathers through the ages tell us, I think, is really, really interesting, and I want to pass on their thinking to you. As in our other lectures, I will draw on a lot of different sources, but there's one source in particular I want to mention in relation to the women at Calvary, and that's a book written in 2002 by Professor Richard Bauckham, quote, Gospel Women, Studies of the Named Women in the Gospels. Professor Bauckham teaches New Testament studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he has a particularly good and interesting analysis that covers a lot of what we'll be talking about here. He alerts us to the uncomfortable fact that scholarship over the ages has not taken very much interest in the women mentioned in Scripture. One of the things I like about him is that he's a very serious scholar, and he takes both Scripture and history seriously, and he's willing to find truths from whatever sources he can find them. Although he's Protestant, I don't think he would complain if I were to say that his approach is very Catholic, because the church has always been eager to find truth in whatever sources it can find truth. Think of St. Thomas Aquinas and the very pagan and Greek Aristotle for one particularly good example. Bauckham has studied a lot of the so-called feminist scholarship, which arose to prominence in the 1970s and continues to this day. And he's been able to find, here and there, good points to seize upon. The term itself, feminist scholarship, cuts a pretty broad swath, and I'm not going to go into it. But there's one strong strain within it that Bauckham doesn't have much use for, and that's the kind that presumes all words of scripture must be distrusted because they were written by patriarchal males who oppressed women. This kind of presumption is unwarranted and does not make for good scholarship. On the other hand, Bauckham thinks that just because scholarship might be focused on women in a way that it hasn't focused previously, there's no grounds to dismiss it altogether. So he is thankful for that focus because he's found plenty to profit from and says, quote, These scholars have made the women in the Gospels visible simply by attending to the evidence of the texts that generations of male scholars had, to put it charitably, not found very interesting or had not thought significant enough to deserve their labors. Feminist scholarship, he says, at least allows us to now see that the, those women who were prominent in the birth, passion, and resurrection narratives are, quote, significant and interesting. Fifteen women in total are mentioned by name in the Gospels. Three in Matthew's genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. There's Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Anna at the temple, Martha and Mary at Bethany, and the evil Herodian princess, 
Herodias. And then there's the seven we'll be talking about here. Mary, 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 Salome, Susanna, Jana, and Holy Mary. Scripture mentions several women and men without giving us their names. And while I'm sure they are well celebrated in heaven, but for us mortals below, they are completely lost to history. That's because the general thought is that the gospel writers, who are writing 30, 40, 50 or more years after the events in question, named people who were well-known figures in the early Christian communities. Those who were not named? Well, it wouldn't have mattered to them at least. Why should they care about fame right now? For that matter, why should you or me? So, we have some seven women who appear to have been well-known to the early Christian communities. Unfortunately, this is not true for us now, many centuries later. Some of these women we know a little bit about. Some of these women we know nothing about. But even for the women we may know nothing about, there's a surprising amount of historical information that will at least give us something about who they were about. I'm not talking speculation here or the stuff from which legends are made or weird shows on the History Channel. I'm talking about actual historical details that make the descriptions of these women, or at least some of these women, highly plausible. And the descriptions that come together, I think, are really, really interesting. And I think you'll find them really, really interesting too. By way of a roadmap, here's what we're going to do. In this part one, we're going to walk through the gospel accounts. They each give us very different details, and it takes some time to unpack and correlate these details. In the next section, we'll talk about the three Marys. Three Marys other than the one and only Mary, the mother of Jesus. The three Marys being, or maybe it's two Marys. Yes, we'll be talking about that too. Mary of Clopas, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the most extraordinary of these three Marys, Mary Magdalene. In the part three, we'll cover Susanna and then Joanna, wife of Chusa. I realize you probably haven't heard much about these two women, like you have, say, about Mary Magdalene, and so you may or may not be interested in them. Please, let me tell you, they are, or at least Jonna is. We don't know that much about Susanna, but what we can know about Jonna, at least, is really, really interesting, because fairly recent history has brought Jonna to attention in far more detail than has ever existed in the 2,000-year history of the church. I guarantee you'll be amazed at what historians have been able to say about her. And then we'll close with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're going to plunge into one of the most overlooked aspects of Jesus' words to her from the cross. The fact that he calls her woman and does not address her as mother. And the fact that he addresses John, not as John, but as son. Very oddly, most church fathers have missed the implications of these words over the centuries. But not all have done so. And somewhat surprisingly, it's modern scriptural analysis that has rescued Mary from this simplified interpretation that Jesus was just making final arrangements for his mother before he died. We will forever banish that notion from ever entering your minds again. His words went far, far beyond that, and you will be amazed to see why and how this is so. In short, we'll get a pretty vivid picture of the individuals who stayed with Jesus through his last breaths, and from that picture, we'll come to understand why these particular women were truly extraordinary and every bit worthy of our great interest, admiration, and inspiration.
Let's start with the text of the Gospels, because that's where we're going to get our primary information, of course. We'll start with Mark, proceed to Matthew, Luke, and finally John. And we need to take some care in going through each of these Gospels, because each of their accounts is quite different. Each of them identifies completely different people, or at least they offer us completely different names for these people, if maybe those names happen to go to the same people. Let's start with the Gospel of Mark. Mark says this at chapter 15, verses 40 to 41, and it follows immediately after Jesus had died, and the centurion exclaims, quote, truly, this man was the Son of God. So you will call this from our last episode. We have these most remarkable words from this most remarkable of soldiers, and then immediately we get this, quote, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him, and also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, end quote. Okay, you got that? Let me read it again, just so you get it, because there are a lot of details in there, and we're going to go through those details. There were many, there were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him, and also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, end quote. Now, let's see if you get these same details from his description here. Number one, the women were, quote, looking on from afar. Number two, Mary Magdalene was there. Number three, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, was there. Four, Salome was there. And five, quote, many other women were there who had come up with Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee, where they had, quote, followed him and ministered to him. Now, these are pretty striking details, and we're going to unpack them as we go on. Mark repeats two of these names shortly thereafter in verse 47, when Jesus was laid in the tomb. Just after Mark says that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body and then bought a linen shroud, wrapped Jesus in it, laid him in the tomb, and then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb, Mark says, quote, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now, scholars say Mark puts it this way very likely as a placeholder so that he won't have to explain why on Sunday morning Mary Magdalene and the other women won't have to ask where Jesus was buried. They know exactly where he was buried because they watched him being buried, and they watched the stone roll against the opening of the tomb. But in his detail here, Mark doesn't mention Salome, by name at least, or the many other women who had followed Jesus up from Galilee, as he had mentioned were at Calvary. He just mentions Mary Magdalene and, quote, Mary, the mother of Joseph. Leaving out the full description he just gave moments before when he had said, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. James the Younger gets dropped. Of course, we all know who he was anyhow, don't we? Well, maybe. Stay tuned. But what's funny, textually speaking, is that Mark then drops Joseph and brings James back into the description when he mentions what happened on Easter morning. There, he says, quote, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, 
and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. So we're back now to three women by name, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. So far, so good. Hold that thought because we're now going to see how Matthew puts it. Matthew's pretty close to this, but he introduces someone else and says things just a little differently. He too has his description follow immediately after the centurion's comment when he says, truly, this was the son of God. At chapter 27, verses 55 to 56, he follows with this, quote, There were also many women there, looking on from afar, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we notice these details again. Number one, there were, quote, many women there looking on from afar. Number two, they had, quote, followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Three, Mary Magdalene was there. Four, quote, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was there. Notice he says Joseph, not Joseph. Scholars are okay with that because the name Joseph and Joseph are interchangeable. And then finally, number five, he says, quote, we have the mother of the sons of Zebedee there. Mark never mentioned the mother of the sons of Zebedee. He mentions Salome. Matthew now drops Salome and mentions her. Why? Could Salome be the mother of the sons of Zebedee? After all, the description here is only of the mother. Doesn't it make sense that Mark just gives us her actual name? while Matthew leaves her without a more complete description as the mother of two very famous sons? Actually, church fathers and scholars are quite divided on this point. We know at least who the sons of this one are, if we don't know her name. Those sons of Zebedee we know perfectly well. They're James and John, the one Jesus nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. I love those guys. They must have been really loud and emotional to get those nicknames. Remember, they were the ones who got so ticked off at that Samaritan village that they asked Jesus whether he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to destroy it. I always liked that story because I'm sure I would have asked the same thing too. Burn it to the ground. Pour salt over it. How dare they refuse our Lord lodgings for the night. But Jesus, ever forbearing, just said no. You got to think these two sons of thunder had one feisty mother who raised her boys to be feisty too. Or they just got her genes. Or if she wasn't herself feisty, she had to be a strong enough one to keep them in line. Remember, she was a pretty bold mother herself. She was certainly pious, but she also had a lot of chutzpah, as they say. Matthew says in chapter 20 that when Jesus and his disciples were going up to Jerusalem, he pulled them aside and said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the leaders, and they're going to make fun of me and put me to death and nail me to a cross. And then three days later, I will rise to life. Remember that? Well, it was exactly at that point when this very same mother, quote, got down on her knees, end quote, to ask Jesus something. He said, what do you want? I always think it's funny when Jesus asks someone a question. This is God. Of course, he knows what someone is thinking and what they're going to ask him. But he asked him anyway. And she said, quote, say that my two sons may sit one at your right side and one at your left side when you were king. Dang, women, pretty gutsy. 
First of all, Jesus just got done telling her that he was going to be crucified and put to death. And she says, yeah, I want my boys to be there with you whenever it is you become king. Second of all, we don't have any other examples of any other, the other moms asking anything like this. Maybe somewhere right there, right there among them. And if so, I imagine they were cringing. Good grief, they would have thought. There she goes again, always asking the best for her children. Doesn't she think we want that too? Why should her kids get the best? Aren't mine more deserving? What's funny, in my imagination at least, is that I imagine James and John standing there with a kind of smugness, eyes narrowed, lips thin, thinking, you go, Mom, that's right, always the best for us, and completely oblivious to the very probable green envy coming out of the ten other disciples standing there too. They stand proud, arms folded, turn their heads toward them, and give a look like, hey, unless you ask, you may not get. We're just asking, you know. I don't think my imagination's too far off because Jesus doesn't say no to their mom's question. He just says, quote, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to take the suffering I'm about to take? What's curious is it's not the mom who answers Jesus, but her kids. They jump in immediately and say, yes, we're able. They double down, as it were. You're doggone right we want to be at your right and your left when you're king, and yes, we'll suffer for it too. At least they knew it wasn't going to be all wine and roses. So Jesus says, in effect, okay, you're going to suffer as I will suffer, but that right hand, left hand placement, no, my father decides who gets those. That seemed to satisfy the Zebedee family, but not the others. It says they got, quote, angry with the two brothers. Well, of course they did. Why not? It's like the dude who always jumps up front and says, I got shotgun. Or the guy who's always insists on being first in the buffet line or the ice cream stand and says, I want to be team captain. Who says you get to be the one? And at that point, Jesus then gives them all a little lecture about how kings and leaders like to show their power over others, but it must not be that way with them. But we're getting a little far ahead of ourselves here. I just wanted you to know that Matthew introduces at the crucifixion scene, quote, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, without saying her name. And whether she is known by the name of Salome, who Mark named, or someone else, we'll address in a minute. Sadly, Matthew doesn't help much in figuring out who is who, because shortly thereafter, when he too is describing the burial of Jesus that late Friday afternoon, he says, quote, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary stayed there. They were sitting near the grave. Who's that other Mary? Well, we'll explore that in a minute too. But she's the same woman who by that same designation, the other Mary, who is with Mary Magdalene on Easter morning. And the two of them only are there. No others, as Matthew tells it. So Luke now makes this really interesting. He's going to introduce to us someone completely new, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time unpacking who she is. That's Jonna, and we'll talk a whole lot about her in our third episode. But first, let's go to Luke's account, which starts actually on the way of the cross. He's the one that tells us about Simon of Cyrene helping to carry Jesus' cross. And immediately after telling this about Simon, Luke points out, Quote, many people follow Jesus. Okay, so no detail. 
Presumably, they were Jesus' followers, but he doesn't say. And this is, again, on the way to Calvary, not at Calvary. He doesn't specify whether they were men or women. Maybe they were both, and maybe they were just people who wanted to watch some crucifixion scene for entertainment purposes, like the people who slow down near a bad accident on the freeway so they can see the gore. I want to shoot those people. But we don't know. But we do know there were other followers along the way of the cross who were sympathetic, and we know they were, quote, women, not men. Maybe the men were those damn rubberneckers. But Luke says, quote, there were women who cried and had sorrow for him. God bless them. I'm sure God did bless them. But Jesus didn't exactly have comforting words for their tears. He said, quote, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never gave suck. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? I wonder if they stopped crying when they heard this. Probably not. They probably cried harder. I would have if I had not been one of those damn rubberneckers and had really thought about what he said. You think it's bad now, he's saying. Wait till you see what's coming to you and your children. You'd be better off if you have no children. Not a pretty prophecy. And it came true just like he said when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. The Romans laid siege to the city, which produced starvation and cannibalism. When the Romans entered and slaughtered the surviving inhabitants, they say the streets were ankle-deep in blood. That's probably not an exaggeration. If you lived another 40 years up to the time of that experience, you'd have been grateful not to have have to watch any children of yours go through that experience, too. After this exchange with the weeping women, Luke then brings us to the crucifixion scene and offers us some details there. And among those details are words, he tells us, which Jesus said, again, right after the soldier standing there witnesses Jesus' death and proclaimed he was a good man. Luke says this, quote, And all the multitudes who assembled to see the sight, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance and saw these things. So here we have a description of all the multitudes who assembled to see the sight. Maybe this included those men, those rubberneckers. Maybe they realized a bad thing had just happened. And they were there beating themselves on their chests, he says. And then Luke adds there, all his acquaintances. Some translations say friends. Okay, so that's helpful, except we don't know who those friends are, and it certainly doesn't seem to include his 12 very special friends. Well, 11, now that Judas has bolted. 11 of his disciples, because they are nowhere to be found. None except John, of course, and we'll talk about him in a bit. So this group seems to include people other than the disciples who were, quote, friends of Jesus. Were there men in this group? Maybe. The language is gender neutral. But then Luke adds this class of individuals who were there too, quote, and the women who had followed him from Galilee, end quote. He says that they stood at a distance and saw these things. 
What's interesting is that while many left beating their breasts, some friends and these women from Galilee stuck around. Both Mark and Matthew had this same description too. Remember, he says they stood at a distance or were, or were a long way off. Scholars have discussed this point a lot, and they usually say that the import is to show how alone Jesus really was when he was put to death. He was effectively abandoned by everyone. The only people near him were the chief priests and leaders and others who were there to mock him and taunt him and say, yeah, if you really are the son of God, why don't you just come down from your little cross there? To the extent Jesus had any friends there, they were some friends and the women from Galilee, and they were, quote, a long way off watching these things. No real comfort there. Now, Luke doesn't mention by name at least Mary Magdalene, Salome, or the mother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, or the mother of the sons of Zebedee, like Mark and Matthew do. The way he puts it is this, and it harkens to details he gave us earlier in his gospel. He says, after they had laid Jesus in the grave, which had been cut out in the side of a rock and had never been used, he says this, quote, It was time to get ready for the day of rest, which was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed behind. They saw the grave and how his body was laid. They went back and got some spices and perfumes ready, but they rested on the day of rest as the law said to do. Now notice this curious phrase, the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. First of all, they're the only ones who, quote, followed behind to see where Jesus was buried. Whatever friends or acquaintances who were there with them at the crucifixion scene are not there at the burial. They're gone. Who then are these women who, quote, followed behind? Do we know? Well, actually we do, because in chapter 8, Luke gives us quite a bit of detail about Jesus' preaching in Galilee and who was with him when he was preaching. Listen to this passage at the outset of chapter 8, because it gives us a pretty powerful evidentiary base that we're going to keep coming back to later. He says this, quote, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven de demons had gone out, and Jana, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So this is very interesting. Of course, we have the 12 disciples with Jesus. But then he said there were those who, quote, had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities who were with him. It might be a little embarrassing for Luke to be calling out by name certain women who had been healed of demons and diseases. Of course, Mary Magdalene wasn't afraid of being named. And Luke tells us right there in that passage that she was the one out of whom seven demons had gone out. We'll talk a lot about her in part three. But two others weren't afraid to be named either. There was Jana, the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward, and there was Susanna, and they are described as those who, with others, quote, provided for them out of their means, out of their means. Who's going to be able to do that? Poor people? No, rich people. But hold that thought. More later. Now we're going to make a deep dive into these details in a bit, 
But it's important that we look at the names and descriptions of these women here, because these names appear to be the same women who had come with Jesus to Jerusalem and were there at the crucifixion scene. And they were the ones who, after seeing where Jesus was buried, quote, went back and got some spices and perfumes ready. And then they rested, as the law said they must do. But then Easter morning came, and Luke tells us, in general terms at the outset, that, quote, they went to the tomb taking the spices which they had prepared. Notice how he says they, a plural pronoun. The they refers to the group of people he had just left off with at the burial, the women who had come up with him from Galilee. So that's more than just the two Matthew had mentioned, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We now have other women there too, along with these two women. Luke tells us that these women saw the stone had been pushed away, that they went in to find Jesus' body, that it wasn't there, and that two men standing by, quote, in dazzling apparel, told them that Jesus was risen, and the two men asked them with rhetorical flourish, don't you remember what he said to you while he was still in Galilee? And he might have added, or just a few days ago when you were coming up to Jerusalem with him that he would be given over to sinful men, that he'd be nailed to a cross, and that he will rise again three days later. Luke says, quote, they remembered what he had said. Ah, now they get it. So Luke says they came back from the grave and told these things to the, quote, 11 followers and to all the rest. And then Luke decides to name names. Quote, now it was Mary Magdalene and Jonna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. So we now have Mary Magdalene mentioned again, as with, quote, Mary, the mother of James, which were not sure references the mother of James and Joseph, or the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who we know are James and John. Too many Jameses around here. But he also names Jonna, and she's the one named in chapter 8 as the wife of Chusa who was an official in Herod's court. Susanna was named in chapter 8 by name, but she's not named here, but it certainly seems likely she would have been one of the other women in the plural sense who were at the cross and burial, as well as at the tomb on Easter morning, as well as with the eleven shortly thereafter. Now we should note with a fair amount of somber that we're just not used to feeling when we think about Easter morning. And that's that their message was not well received. When the women gave their report, Luke says, quote, their words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Some translations use the words foolish talk. Ouch. Here they are, so excited to have come from the tomb, having found an empty tomb and seen two men in dazzling apparel who reminded them that Jesus had risen from the dead and they were here with Jesus' closest followers, giving them this extraordinary news. And that, yes, they did remember what Jesus had told them all just a few days before. Don't you? Don't you? And they were sure the other disciples would remember it too. And what's their reward for carrying this great news that we all believe and cherish today? It was foolish talk and that the other followers didn't believe them. We don't think of it all very much because we're so excited to start eating the Easter candy but when you stop and think about it, 
Don't you think they might have been just a little bit depressed hearing that? Well, thankfully, not all scoffed. Luke tells us that Peter jumped up and ran to the grave. Luke doesn't quite say that Peter believed yet. He just tells us that Peter went home wondering at what had happened. He went home wondering. What a strange way to put it. How do you wonder whether Jesus had risen from the dead after all Peter had seen and experienced and had just gone through? The first Easter Sunday was very probably a real mix of emotions for the women who had come to the tomb with burial spices and who had been reminded that Jesus wasn't there because he'd risen. They came, they saw, they believed, and no one believed them. No one, even among Jesus' own friends and followers and disciples. Not a terribly happy experience. At least by the end of the day, their story must have created some doubt in the others. When Luke recounts how two disciples were on their way to Emmaus, about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem, Jesus appears incognito to them and says, So, what are you talking about? And the men then reply like this, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, you got to like Jesus' response here. Remember, earlier that day, these two men were presumably among the group who heard what Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, Susanna, and the others had told them that morning and had said their words were, quote, foolish. Ha! Guess what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in reply to what they had just told him. Quote, you foolish men, you idiots, he basically said. How slow you are to believe what the early preachers have said. Did not Christ have to go through these hard things to come into his shining greatness? And it says, Jesus kept on telling them what Moses and all the early preachers had said about him in the Holy Writings. Oh, so this stranger tells them, and now they start to believe? But they didn't believe the women? Well, they got their comeuppance, didn't they? Look who are the real idiots. Jesus has to tell them. And to their credit, this insult got recorded in the Gospels for all the future world and eternity to see. They knew they deserved a flogging for not having believed the women, and they're admitting it here. Sort of. At least as much as your average male is willing to admit to having made a mistake, or to stop and ask directions when lost. Let's now turn to the last account, John's account at the Women of the Cross. And I'm happy to say that he's now going to give us even more details than we have with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I'm also sorry to say that he's going to raise even more questions for us. Let's start with the point that many scholars make, which is that John was writing to an entirely different crowd than Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing to. He was writing to the group of believers, early Christians, who presumably already knew of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. Or maybe they didn't, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that John is going to tell them things that he thought they needed to hear as Christians and not say as he thought curious Jews or Gentiles might need or want to hear. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the women standing off from afar looking on. 
John doesn't mention anything about a group of women, and he doesn't have them standing off afar looking on. Instead, he says this, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So a couple of points to notice here. First, John was there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not. Not that we should think that makes any difference as to credibility, because they were all credible. They were all inspired by the Word of God. But if John was there, we should think we might pay greater attention to the details he gives us. Second, John introduces women at the cross before Jesus dies, whereas the other Gospels tell us about the women after he dies and after the centurion makes his extraordinary proclamation. Third, John has the women, quote, standing by the cross. They were close to Jesus. They weren't standing afar like the women are said to be. Of course, there are a lot of scriptural yahoos out there who like to smirk. See, once again, the Gospels are contradicting themselves. You know, I really tire of that claptrap. And they come from so-called brainy theologians, many of whom teach in so-called Catholic colleges. But I'm going to say the same thing about them that Jesus said to his own disciples on the road to Emmaus. You idiots. Don't you think that people can at one point be near something and at another point be standing afar? No, apparently they never thought of that. They'd rather proclaim a contradiction than do any common sense thinking about common realities. But you don't have to credit me for this brilliant insight. St. Augustine and other church fathers noted the same thing too. Apparently they had the same idiots in their day and age, probably not employed by any Catholic university back then. And St. Augustine pointed out that this is really no contradiction whatsoever. He points out something obvious from the texts. Quote, We might also suppose that they who were there together with the Lord's mother began to depart after he had commended her to the disciple, that they might extricate themselves from the crowd, and looked on from a distance at the other things which were done, so that the evangelists who speaks to them after the Lord's death speak of them as standing afar off. St. Thomas Aquinas likes this explanation too. He says, plain and simple, there is no contradiction. Near and far are relative, and nothing prevents something from being near in one sense and far in another. The women were said to be near because they were within the range of sight, and they could be described as afar because other people were between them and Jesus. Or one could say that when the crucifixion was beginning, the women were standing near Christ and were able to speak to him, while later, when a number of people came forward to taunt him, the women withdrew and stood further away. Thus, John is telling what happened at first and the other evangelists what happened after. That's in his commentary on the Gospel of John. And there's modern scriptural scholars who make this very clear point too. One gospel writer, a writer wants to make one point about Jesus being utterly alone at death, and John wants to make a different point except when Jesus saw his mother and John standing nearby at one point. But let's look at the list of women John gives us. He says standing there were, quote, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, end quote. Now, did you catch that first part? 
his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So notice how I'm reading that. Is his mother's sister someone separate? Or is Mary, the wife of Clopas, his mother's sister? Well, St. Augustine and plenty of others through history have had a problem with this too. And it's a problem sometimes referred to as the missing Oxford comma. At least in modern times it is. Oxford wasn't around at the time of St. Augustine, but if it were, he would have called it the missing Oxford comma problem too. And maybe he would have been a card-carrying member of the Oxford comma society. Yes, there really is such a society, although I think it's for the sake of making a joke. I'd happily be a member of the society as long as they don't collect dues. Now, all you grammarians out there know that if you really want to be precise in listing a list of things, you use the Oxford comma. That's the comma that goes before the last thing listed where a conjunction like and is used and which somehow, for reasons mostly obscure in English printing, is sometimes omitted, either because printers assume that people knew the second to the last item really was the second to the last item and that it would save money on printer's ink over time if we just left out the comma. I'm not making this up. You all know the issue, whether you're a grammarian or not. If you read these words, you're going to have questions. Quote, Jack went on a walk with his dogs, Sally and Bob. Wait, you would say, um, are Sally and Bob Jack's dogs? Or did Jack go on a walk with his dogs and with Sally and Bob? Well, a comma would sure help out, or another and in between Sally and Bob. Now, some church fathers were so bothered by this lack of commas in the Gospel of John here that they put an and in between his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, to make clear there were four women listed. Tatian and the Syrian Peshitta made the text read, quote, his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas. The problem is, there ain't no and in the original. There's an and between his mother and his mother's sister, and there's an and between Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, but there's no and between his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. In our example with uh, Jack and his dogs, if you read that Jack went on a walk with his dogs, comma, Sally, comma, and Bob, you would know that Sally and Bob were not Jack's dogs. But without those commas, you really wouldn't know. Sally and Bob might be Jack's dogs. Or you could add another and between dogs and Sally, Jack went on a walk with his dogs and with Sally and Bob. But John didn't do that. And so we have the same problem here. The Greek doesn't use commas, so we're stuck with the passage that lists, quote, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we're talking maybe four people, his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, or we're talking about three people, his mother and, her, and his mother's sister, who is Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There are some people who argue that the list includes only two people, and they read it this way, his mother and his mother's sister, that is, Mary of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. In other words, they say that Mary of Clopas was Jesus' mother, and Mary Magdalene was his mother's sister. These are people who argue about anything, and so we have a great word to describe these people. Stupid. We all know Jesus' mother was married to Joseph, 
So Mary of Clopas could not refer to her. And Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned numerous times throughout all four Gospels, is never referred to as any relation as Jesus, much less being a sister of his mother Mary, making Mary Magdalene Jesus' aunt. And for those real idiots, and yes, there are plenty of them, and yes, they teach theology, and yes, they write really stupid books and popular magazines and articles. For, for those who think that Jesus actually went off with Mary Magdalene and married her, I'm waiting for them to say, and yes, he married her as his aunt because he was a revolutionary who wanted to liberate us from all the social conventions. Yes, how very touching. But the real debate is whether John's list includes three people or four people. That's tougher. Is there any way out of it? Well, actually, yes, and with some very thoughtful analysis. There are four main points scholars like to banner around in favor of the four-person theory, and you're probably thinking of those four points, too. The problem is that none of those four points are conclusive. First, people note that if Mary of Clopas was, in fact, Jesus' aunt, then you'd have two Marys in the same household, which seems unlikely. The great historical critical scripture scholar Father Raymond Brown, whom you may recall, and I love to draw on for his analysis, he likes this theory. But other scholars have actually found examples of multiple Marys in the same household during the same period of antiquity. Not often, but not never. I know a French family. They gave the name Mary to each of their five daughters, but then called them by their middle names, which varied. So it's done in our time as well. But there's an easy way around this problem, assuming that families never gave the name Mary to two of their daughters. Either the sisters are not real blood sisters and maybe cousins, or they are sisters-in-law. Put a pause button on that. We're going to come back to it. Second, there are people who say there's a nice stylish symmetry in having two pairs of women, one pair named and one pair unnamed. The named pair would be Mary of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. The unnamed pair would be mother of Jesus and his mother's sister. But the theory doesn't work if Mary of Clopas really is the Blessed Mary's sister-in-law and Jesus' aunt. In that case, it'd be natural to name the sister-in-law and not because her name made for some nice stylistic symmetry. Third, John puts the word and in Greek, the word chi, in other lists, so he intended to create a list of four here. No, that's not a reason to decide between three or four people. In fact, it's a better argument for why there are three people. He put an and exactly where one would put an and if one wanted to identify separate entities. And then finally, this is under the four-person uh, theory, John wanted the women to be contrasted with the soldiers. John mentioned four soldiers, so he mentioned four women. I'm tempted to say, cute. Why we need a parallel between soldiers and women is unclear, but the problem is is that the notion doesn't even work numerically. John is standing there too. So what does that tell us? I have absolutely no idea. But you don't have four soldiers and four of Jesus' friends. You have four soldiers and five friends. And in, uh, yeah, right. The theory goes nowhere. But let's focus on an interesting word choice going on here. John refers to, quote, Mary of Clopas. Now, what does that of mean? Now that we'll take a break from talking about the ands, we can talk about the ofs, and that can mean a couple of different things. 
When Matthew lists his genealogy at the front of the gospel, he refers to Bathsheba as, quote, the wife of Uriah. So the Greek in the New Testament can mean Mary, the wife of Clopas. But it can also mean the mother of. And we've seen an example of that already with Mary of Joseph, which was shorthand for Mary, the mother of Joseph. And she's also called Mary of James, when we know she was previously called Mary, the mother of James the Lesser and Joseph. So, Mary of James or of Joseph indicates that James and Joseph were her sons, not her husbands, as if two separate names alone wouldn't give that issue away. But the point is that Mary of somebody can mean Mary, the wife of somebody, or Mary, the mother of somebody. Professor Bacham, who you may remember I mentioned at the outset, points out that it's the former meaning that's much more common, that the more common usage of the of phrase in Jewish Palestine was that the references to a married woman as the wife of her husband. In that case, the more common meaning of Mary of Clopas meant that Mary was the wife of Clopas. It's possible, he says, that the reference was to her as the mother of Clopas, but that would only work if Clopas were well enough known to John's readers that they would know who John was referring to and to know that Clopas was her son. So we do, do we know who Clopas was? Bacham thinks we do. There's a second century writer by the name of Hegesippus who tells us about the fellow who succeeded St. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who was beheaded. St. James's successor was known as Simon or Simeon. But what makes this interesting is that Simon, or Simeon, was also known as the son of Clopas. And this Clopas, he says, was the brother of Jesus's earthly father, St. Joseph. In other words, Joseph and Clopas were blood brothers, blood brothers. That would make Clopas Mary's brother-in-law, and it would also make Clopas Jesus's uncle, Uncle Clopas. And Uncle Clopas may have been, at least at one time, the most important Christian leader in Palestine, and at the time when John was writing his gospel. Hegesippus says he lived to the age of 120 and was martyred during the reign of Trajan in the early 2nd century and well after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What gives us some level of certainty that the Clopas mentioned by John is the same Clopas mentioned by Hegesippus is that the name Clopas is extremely rare. So rare, in fact, that the only mention of this name is in the account of the Gospel of John and Hegesippus. In no other record of antiquity is the name Clopas found. That's pretty remarkable because scholars have a kind of running tally of every name used in Jewish Palestine. The name Clopas just doesn't appear anywhere else. So what this points to is that Mary of Clopas was the wife of Clopas, and that she was Jesus's mother's husband's brother's wife. Sounds complicated, right? We actually have a word for that in English. We English speakers, that is. Mary of Clopas was the Blessed Virgin's sister-in-law. Now, Bacchus informs us that there really isn't a word for that in Greek, at least one that was ever commonly used. People just said sister when they meant either blood sister or sister-in-law. And that's what John used here. He didn't intend to identify her as a blood sister, 
because he knew, like most people knew, both then and now, that if you didn't have two sisters in the same house, blood sisters, both given the same name Mary, not at least usually, but you can almost imagine him saying, in response to someone who said, hey, that Mary of Clopas you said was Mary's sister, was that her blood sister? To say, no, silly. If I said her name was Mary and that she was Mary's sister, of course I meant they were sisters by marriage. So as the argument goes, when we're looking at John's list, and he tells us that standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, he's identified two people, not three. In other words, an Oxford comma really should not be placed here, as it would imply three people, not two. The words, his mother's sister, actually modify the words, Mary Clopas, and do not separately identify some unnamed women. In fact, as Bakken points out, if this reference really is to some unnamed women, then that would be just weird. Quote, there would be an odd difference between the second woman, whose re relationship to Jesus is stated, but who is not named, and the third, who is named, but whose relationship to Jesus is not stated. In other words, why would John name someone who is not related to Jesus, but avoid naming someone who actually is related to him? And we're not done with creative competing theories here. There are some who want to harmonize John's list with Matthew's list. Remember, Matthew has at the cross, quote, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So as these other theorists go, maybe Mary of Clopas was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Nice try, sort of. But we already know the name of the father of James and Joseph. It was Alphaeus. So Mary of Clopas would have to be Mary of Alphaeus for that to work. But these people just don't give up. Wait, wait, they say. Maybe Clopas also went by the name of Alphaeus. Okay, smarty pants, if that's so, then why didn't John just say so? And why didn't he tie this Mary to these better-known sons, James and John, if Clopas were not sufficiently well-known and someone very other than Alphaeus? And for Pete's sake, can we say the obvious? Why wouldn't John have just mentioned that it was his mother if he's the famous one anyhow? But he didn't. So no. Mary Clopas was not the same person as the mother of the sons of Alphaeus. One final comment about Clopas, and I have to say this is what makes historical analysis loads of fun because it just shows how complicated life and words can be. You remember Luke's account after the resurrection when he's talking about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Well, he gives us a name for one of them and not the other, and the name he gives us is Cleopas. It's Clopas spelled with an E in there. Now, don't get too excited too quickly. First, it's not just some alternate spelling. That would be too easy. No, Luke spells it exactly as he did with an E, because the name Cleopas is really the short name for Cleopatros, which is a Greek name. If you got tired of saying Cleopatros and you're a Greek, you would just say, call me Cleopas. And we do this all the times ourselves. You can call me Jeremiah, or you can call me Jeremy. You can call me Alexander, or you can call me Alex. Shoot, we do this even for short names, like, like mine. No name to call me David, just call me Dave. 
And I think the human being is always in search of trading more syllables for fewer syllables. And the Greeks did that too. What this means is that there may have been this disciple who was named Cleopatros, but he went by the shorter name Cleopas. That's possible. But scholars like Bacham don't think that's likely, and this is where I think the fun comes in, at least for historical analysis geeks. Lots and lots of Jews would go by Greek-sounding names. Let me say it again. Lots and lots of Jews would go by Greek-sounding names. We're actually going to talk about this a lot later on when we talk about Jana and give you plenty of names to ponder. But if you were a Jew and you had, of course, a Jewish name, and if you wanted to run with the Gentiles and be known to them, you would pick the closest-sounding Greek or Roman name to use because it was easier to pronounce for them and because it was well-familiar to them. Immigrants have done this for time immemorial. That guy you just met from Japan who says his name is Mike is really not Mike, but you don't care. You don't challenge him on it. You just say, nice to meet you, Mike. So a Jewish guy by the name of Clopas might also go by the name of Cleopas because the two names sounded closely the same. And even though Clopas was never named Cleopatros, a Jewish guy by the name of Simeon would go by the Greek name Simon, which sounds similar. Or Joshua could go by Jason, and so forth. So, are Clopas the husband of Mary, the guy who was not at the cross, but his wife was? He may very well have been that guy on the road to Emmaus, walking away from Jerusalem when he should have been staying put and rejoicing with his wife over Jesus being raised from the dead. Yeah, that makes for quite a story. We'll come back to him. Don't worry. But let's draw our conclusion here about John's gospel and the people he identifies as being with Jesus in his last moments. We have three people. Mary, Jesus' mother. Mary of Clopas, Jesus' aunt and Mary's sister-in-law. And Mary Magdalene. We'll talk about each of these three and more in our next episodes. Please join us for our next episode, lecture number 11, in which we'll cover the three Marys, other than Mary, and one Salome. There are some really fascinating facts about them you will not want to miss. We will see you then. Thank you. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Whoa!